I think it's safe to say that one day in the future, cultural historians will look back on our age and our times aghast at our logical fallacies. Uh, the ways in which we are so quick and so willing to uh, make a case, make a, uh, a foolish argument based on some astonishingly flawed uh, positions or claims that we will make stridently so in some cases, all based on some pretty cracked and whacked assumptions. Now we do that broadly, but the only reason that we do it broadly is because we are guilty of it individually. Uh, all of us, all of us have fallen prey to this in some way, shape, or form. I mean, just think with me, right? I mean, whatever uh, school rival you had growing up, you know, on the other side of town, you were told from the earliest times uh, you can recall, those people are arrogant jerks. You've never met them. You have no idea if that's true, but they just has even that just at a young age. I mean, I think it was Chalkley Elementary School was the somehow the rival and enemy of A.M. Davis. This is all back in Midlothian, Virginia, where I grew up. And somehow that's supposed to make these poor kids now our enemies and rivals, and they're villains, and it's just ridiculous. And I remember the first time I met a kid from that school, I'm thinking, Ew. And it just has this way of coloring all of it, this baseless foolishness. Okay, let's advance that just a few years now. So let's say in high school you were bullied by a member of the football team. Oh, that then means, of course, then that all football players are then bullies. Or let's say later on, you are scandalized and offended by the hypocrisy and behavior of people who claim to be Christians, which therein proves to be an obstacle to the claims of Christ in your mind and in your heart. That's a leap. It's an assumption. I, I, I was right there some years ago. It's exactly where I was some years ago. That may be where some of you are now, or maybe you can at least identify with that in, in some way, shape, or form at some time in your life. We have these, we, we make these flawed assumptions. And in this case, it's fairly critical because here are flawed assumptions that we are making about the living Christ the Son of God, and what it means to follow Him. Which then means we need to set the record straight and be clear that our leaps would not be so illogical. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're then going to push on to a little bit of chapter 10. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to go ahead and turn there. It's the first of the Gospels. First book of the New Testament. Uh, we're in a, a series, an extended series through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we are, again, like I said, starting in Matthew 9, verse 35. And we are punching on into chapter 10, going as far as verse 4. So, Matthew 9, verse 35, pushing on into Matthew 10, verse 4. Hear now the Word of God. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for, first off, the things that you did and said in that historical context. Thank you also for through your Holy Spirit we have an authoritative, infallible record that we can count on of exactly what happened, exactly what we need to know. No more, no less, because of the, well, the miracle of your having worked through Matthew, the gospel writer, in the way that you did. And we thank you for the whole of the Scriptures, the whole of the Bible, Old and New Testament, that we can turn to, that we can rely upon. And this morning, at this hour, uh, we stand upon it as authoritative and sure, a foundation that is not going to give or shift under us like so much does. At the same time, we stand under it because it's not man's word, um, it's your word. So we stand and we bow. And we come to you this morning asking that you would teach, that you would instruct, uh, that you would do the heart's surgery uh, that needs to be done for all of us here this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. It's uh, good to be clear on who you're following before you set out to follow it's good to be clear on who you're following before you actually set out to follow them. I want to just paint a picture for you. Let's say you're about to set out on a road trip, and in fact you're caravanning with a series of other cars, and you're in the parking lot, and the others are rolling in, and you're waiting to actually push on out, and you happen to notice that on the dashboard of the lead car there is a radar detector. Hmm, that's interesting. And then a little while later somebody comes up to you, one of the other drivers, by the way, pulls you aside and says, hey, you might want to know this. I've driven, followed this guy before our lead. He's a speed demon. Uh, if you don't keep up, you're going to lose him. Those are good things to know before you set off, before you get a going. Uh, Matthew, Matthew's structure here of this gospel, I should say, well, there is structure, to be sure, as you're reading through his uh, these words, this narrative that we have, there is a, a rhythm almost to it. There's a pattern that you see when you start studying it. It's pretty clear. Uh, he alternates between sections of narrative and discourse, between um, historical events that he's recording, and then sections of teaching that he puts forward here for us. Uh, we Again, it just goes go back and forth, back and forth, tacking one to another as you move through his gospel. We looked some weeks ago, months ago, at uh, the first of those major teaching sections, that was chapters 5, 6, and 7, what's oftentimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. 
And that teaching section was getting at a, answering a question along these lines. So, as citizens of the kingdom of God, how are we to live? What does that look like, living under his authority? Okay, well now we're reaching, pushing on into the second of these teaching sections as you move through the structure of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 10. And now we're coming upon a question and an answer that goes something like this. Well, as those who have been sent out, what does it look like to go? What does that entail? That's what we see uh, here. Again, it's good to be clear. It's good to be clear on who you're following before you start out uh, in following them. It's good to know how you've been sent before you set out to go. What we see here in this text is this, is that this one that we are following, this one who has sent us, is anything, uh, his ways are anything but like what we expect. Jesus and his ways are simply not like what we expect. And we need to take that to heart as we take on his mission. Jesus and his ways are not like what we expect, and we need to take that to heart as we set out to take on his mission. Now, that begs some questions. In what ways are his ways unexpected? In what ways are they surprising and paradigm-shifting for us? And, and what would that look like, and what are the ramifications for that as we set out to, to follow him and serve him? Well, those are the things we're going to be looking at here, and you can see there's three points there in your outline. We're going to be looking at those in in turn, and, and those three things are this. First, in, in the ways that he shows himself to, in fact, be so surprising and unexpected, uh, certainly not normal according to our experience, we see that in the distress that Jesus feels. That comes out in this text. Also, the, the delegation that he makes. And then finally, lastly, the diversity that he creates. So it's these three Ds, okay? Distress and delegation and diversity. In all three of those things, Jesus shows himself to be completely unexpected, completely surprising, unnatural to our understanding and ways, and also each one and all three very much worth our knowing and taking to heart. So let's look at these in turn. The first one being the distress that Jesus feels. Another way to put that would be why he sends us. Why he sends us stems from the distress that we see here in his own heart. Let's look at the, the pressing need. It's pretty obvious that part of the reason that he sends us as he sends us is because of a pressing need that Jesus sees. Verse 36 again. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is making an assessment as the shepherd, he is making an assessment of the flock, if you will, using that imagery, the assessment of the flock there in front of him. And this is the assessment that he makes. He says that they are, recognizes that they are harassed. Now, New Testament commentators, Greek scholars will tell you that word actually implies something like this when it comes to sheep anyway. Their flesh has been torn open. It's a graphic image. It's not just, you know, like irritable harassed, like in a bad mood. Not enough caffeine that morning harassed. But I'm, this is filleted. So harassed and helpless, meaning thrown to the ground like sheep without a shepherd. 
wounded, distraught, vulnerable, and defenseless. That is Jesus' assessment of the flock, which therein is a dramatic, powerful indictment of the shepherds. That is to say, the religious leaders of the day, which harkens back to some imagery from the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets who used that very same imagery, for instance, in Ezekiel 34. A condemnation of the faithlessness of Israel's leaders. And Jesus is seeing something of that repeating itself here in the experience of His people in that time. Therein, stirring a compassion within the heart of the one true chief shepherd himself, literally, literally a, a deep stirring within. A stirring within his, his bones, if you will. A gut reaction. He has, he felt, compassion for them. That is at least part of what's impelling this sending that you see later in the text. But it's not just that, the pressing need. There's also an opportunity that Jesus recognizes with this as well. And that's where you, you see that by just reading a little further, verse 37. So in addition to the compassion that he feels because of the pressing need that he sees, then we see also, verse 37, that he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, this imagery of harvest, you have a shift now from the field of the shepherd to the field of the farmer. Again, it's agrarian society. These people are grasping this, grappling with this, maybe perhaps in ways that better than we can. But this harvest time, this image that Jesus is using here, is understand that he is not here speaking of the final judgment, of as he does elsewhere, using that same image, where it would be speaking of the, shift, the sifting of the chaff and the wheat. That's not what he intends here. This is not the final harvest time, but a great harvest crop that Jesus in his mind's eye, as he looks out over the people, can see. That is to say an opportunity of bountiful yield, a bounty of harvest that he can envision. That is to say souls, men, women, and children whose hearts are ready whose hearts are, are waiting and crying out for the wonder and the grace of the gospel of the good news of the kingdom. That's what he envisions there. That Not just the need, but the opportunity there. And so, that then, so why sin? Why then do we read of that as we do as you keep moving through the text? Well, partly at least why he sends us is the distress that he feels. The great distress that he that he feels, and, and we know that that you know the way that we are able to see is oftentimes driven by what we feel, and it maybe even go conversely. How we feel is oftentimes driven by what we see, and I think it begs some questions of us here this morning. Do we see as Jesus does? What set of glasses, what grid do we see through as we look out and see the people around us? You know, it's it's funny how. Two different people can be looking at the same thing and describe two completely different things. I have that all the time in talking to married couples, in doing church mediation, mediation of any kind. You've got two different people talking about the same thing, and you think they were from two different planets, but they're, it's because of how they're seeing it. 
Or maybe just, you know, maybe a, a less uh, difficult way to think about that would be, um, you know, these hidden pictures that sometimes artists will do. And, and, and depending on, well, just the way you see, one person looks and sees, oh, that's a picture of a beautiful woman. And the other person comes along and looks at the exact same piece of paper and sees an old hag. You've probably seen some of those. It's so much how we see depends on how we see. Or what we see, maybe better yet, this depends on how we see. Well, how should we see? Well, as Jesus does. As Jesus does. As He does here. Which speaks a bit, if I may just touch on this point, to the accusation that is oftentimes lodged against Christians that, well, your exclusive truth claims can be nothing but arrogant. I mean, how can you make an exclusive truth claim about anything? How can you make a stand on, on that? That's nothing but arrogance. Well, okay, it's, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. Yes, Christians can and are, yeah, we can be very arrogant. But just to make an exclusive truth claim, claim in and of itself is not necessarily arrogant. And oh, by the way, to say that all Christians are arrogant, that's a truth claim. We are exclusive in our truth claims all over the place. It's just a matter of whose claim is true. And this claim, the claims of Christianity are being made. And how Jesus is looking out upon this crowd and calling us to see in the same way is a way of seeing and speaking out of conviction and compassion. Not arrogance. That's the first thing. The second thing would be not just would be how does, should we see, but um, what should we do? Well, what does Jesus say? It's kind of a soft pitch here as far as application. Pray. Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly for laborers. That is to say, ambassadors to go forth into every field of labor, every endeavor, every calling as salt and light, as city, well, collectively as a city on a hill, Wherever that may be, whatever it is He's called you to be and to do, go forth, be that, and pray for yet more. And then pray for the harvest. Pray for a response. Pray for a turning. Pray for a heart's embrace and reception of the gospel of the kingdom and the good news of the King and what it is that He has come and done for us. See, this is, this is the distress this is the distress that we are reading here that Jesus feels. This is why He sends us. That's the kind of thing that we need to begin to take to heart as He sends us as we go. The distress upon our Savior's heart. But that then takes us to the second thing, and that is not just the distress that Jesus feels, but the delegation Jesus makes. Not just why He sends us, but how He sends us. And we see that here in verse 1 of chapter 10. And he called to them his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Well, there's at least two things going on here. The first thing being this authority clearly being given uh, to these men that Jesus is calling to himself to serve in this way. Calling these twelve men, which by the way at the very least is a statement of continuity. is an intentionality in calling twelve it's hearkening back to the, to the 12 tribes 
of Israel, which then at the very least is symbolic of the continuing, ongoing, unfolding, progressing work of God's plan of salvation as it is working out in the course of human history. He's saying, I'm not done. This is part of the, the promise from the very beginning, the unfolding of that. Here's 12. So it's partly what's going on here. Authority being uh, given, uh, the statement of continuity, but also being called to represent. Now these apostles, that word means a sent one. Uh, that's what these apostles were, these 12. They were sent, authorized agents. It's hearkening back to the Old Testament concept of the shaliach. The shaliach was one, it was a legal representative of the one who had sent them. Meaning that they, what they agreed to when they went forth into a negotiations was legally binding upon the one who sent them. They spoke on behalf of the one who sent them. And by the way, to speak to the shaliach was in essence to speak to the one who had sent them. That's the apostles. That concept, this representation of the Christ who had sent them. Now just quickly, I want to say this before I move on. In that sense, the apostles are unique. There is no one alive today, and not since the day when John the Apostle died late in the first century. We have had no apostles on this earth in that sense. In that sense. Now that said, that is not to say Jesus does not continue to send. I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes. Just understand the uniqueness of the office, the calling of these 12 men as Apostles, capital A. Okay, the authority given, we see that. Also, honor bestowed. Oh, oh, the honor being bestowed upon those whom are being sent. What you see going on here is an expansion of the work. There is a a shift taking place here in the context of Jesus' ministry. You, you, you see something of that in, in the bookends. And I mentioned earlier how Matthew's gospel is so clearly structured. And you, and you see um, parts here and parts there. And it's so obviously delineated when you begin to really study this. Bookends. Verse 35. You see one of these. I'm going to show you something else that will help you see this. Verse 35 reads, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Okay, that's one bookend. Where's the other bookend? Is it later or is it before? It's actually before. So if you go a few pages, a few chapters earlier to chapter 4, verse 23, you read something that sounds remarkably like what we just read in chapter 9, even in the phrasing. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What Matthew wants us to understand is this period of Jesus' earthly ministry has come to a close, that part. It's now shifting to another part. The, the work is expanding. There's a shift taking place. He intends to continue what he was doing before, but now in and through these men whom he is about to appoint. You see that? And you know that because when you read in chapter 10, verse 1, what we just read a moment ago, it's almost the same verbiage again as what we saw in 9.35 and in 4.23. He, he intends to continue and expand this work through these men whom he is appointing and sending forth. Now, if you could put it this way, you see an expansion of the work which therein necessitates more workers. 
an expansion of the work that then necessitates more workers, which is an astonishing thing when you think about it. I don't know if you just caught what I just said. We're talking about the Almighty God of the universe. And because of the way that He has deemed to do this, to expand the work necessitates more workers. Not because He can't do it, not because He's hamstrung, not because He's incapable, not because He's only got but so much insight, influence, and power, but because of the way He's chosen to do it. It necessitates more workers. Sending forth, still today, you and I. This is an astonishing concept. The honor that is being bestowed upon those whom he sends. Keep your thumb here in uh, Matthew 9 and 10. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Had a few books to the right after the Gospels and Acts and Romans. You hit 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 9. This is astonishing. This is a larger context I understand. I'm just going to read one verse. Paul writes, For we are God's fellow workers. Now, by the way, you dig down in that text. He is not saying we are God's fellow workers in the sense of like co-workers and teammates. Like, you know, if, if, if uh, Micah and I and Nicholas are working on some um, Habitat for Humanity rehab project, and it's just the three of us, we are fellow workers, and, and we are Christians, so therefore we are God's fellow. That's not what Paul means here. It's not in that sense. He means fellow working with God. That's what he means here. And you see that even more explicitly later on in the New Testament, when you go to 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, nearly identical wording, so I had a few more books to the right. It's the first of the books that begin with T, after Thessalonians and Timothy and Titus. So you see 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ. It's actually the same word that we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 3. God's fellow worker, God's co-worker. Uh, Leon Morris in his uh, commentary here says, Without God, we cannot. Without us, He will not. Without God, we cannot. Without us, He will not. Do you hear the honor being bestowed upon us that we could be described in such ways? This is an astonishing principle that we're seeing here. Uh, this is how we see Jesus sending us forth in this way, which is not exactly efficient. right? We're all about efficiency. Streamlining. Uh, you know, I think back when our kids were much, much younger, and some of you have children that are very young can identify this. There's a very little that goes on in your house that's efficient. You know, if, if, if you want to ask said child to help you with a household chore, you know, let's say it's, you know, I don't know, cleaning the bathroom or, or setting the table, you have just created a lot more work for yourself by asking them to help you in the work. But it's really good for them and ennobling for them to be asked and brought into what's, hello, my fellow children, my fellow little toddlers who are, by the way, very inefficient. This is us. This is very much us, and it's the way that the Lord works still. He continues to delegate. 
He continues to send. I said this, this earlier. Um, yes, of course, in the sense of uh, sending us forth as emissaries and ambassadors, and Paul uses that language in 1 Corinthians as well. But not just in that sense. But also in, in spheres that he would send us to serve in. And I, and I would say maybe, put it this way, the church and the state and the home. Church officers that he sends forth or raises up in, in that sense. Or state as the civil authorities, those whom he has appointed and raised up to serve in that capacity. Or in the home, parents. Yes, even you. You are the God-ordained, God-appointed authorities in the lives of your children. He did not, however much you may think it was, a mistake last Monday when you said and did what you did, it was not a mistake. He makes no mistakes. There's at least a couple things that, that flow out of that. The fact that we know that He sends us in, in to serve in, in those spheres in the ways that He does. First of all, an encouragement. A backing. Who sent you? Who sent you? He did. But also humility. Who sent you? And how will you serve in that way? So there's a, a certainty and a confidence and a boldness that ought to be there. But also a humility and a brokenness of spirit as well because of who sent you. He delegates. He continues to delegate. We need to take that to heart as we take on this mission. Lastly, though, the distress, the delegation, that's a lot to look at. There's also this, though, and that has to do with the diversity that he creates. Who has he sent? Not just why, not just how, but now who. Verses 2 through 4, the names of the twelve apostles are these. For Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Let me press quickly through this. I'm just going to skip to the second part there, the different perspectives. Um, poles apart politically are represented there amidst the twelve. On the one hand, you have Matthew the tax collector, the, the author, the human author of this gospel, who in every way was laboring for the government, was serving Rome as a tax collector. Okay. On the other hand, you have the second of the Simons that is listed, some of your translations say Simon the Canaanian. It's a better way to translate that would be Simon the Zealot. Uh, Simon is not working for the government. He's working against the government. Uh, Simon is working not to serve Rome, but to overthrow it. Simon is not a tax collector. He is at best a political activist. He is a rebel. He is, perhaps even you go so far to say, in certain corners, the, the zealots were known to be insurrectionists. Do you see how far apart, poles apart, these two men are on this question? And yet, in service to Jesus, they're one. And it could only be by the power of Jesus that those barriers and those walls could be torn down. That's the only way that that could happen. So again, who is sending us? How does he send us? Why does he send us? 
Who is he sending? There's this diversity here. I mean, I don't know about you, but I know I find my heart warmed by stories of men and women who are brought together in what seems to be almost impossible friendships. There's one that I've been keeping track of for some number of years, that being the friendship between uh, Steve Brown and Tony Campolo. Um, they're about as far apart politically as you could possibly imagine, and they both will uh, you know, agree with that. As Brown has been quoted as saying, we don't agree on much of anything but Jesus. Uh, I'm going to read you an excerpt from uh, Steve Brown's book, Scandalous Freedom. He's reflecting here in the context on a TV show that he and uh, Tony Campolo did years ago. And he's reflecting on that. And he says, during the commercial breaks, I stayed at the table and drank coffee. Do you know what Tony did? He would take that time, often getting out the little New Testament he carries in his pocket, to talk to the people on the set about eternal issues and the importance of knowing Jesus. I, the conservative, whose theological and political views I genuinely believe were correct, sat and watched as my weird pinko communist friend told the lost about Jesus. It's hard for me to hear people attack my friend. You see, I know Tony. I know his commitment to Christ, his love and concern for the poor and the oppressed, and his gigantic heart. I believe he's wrong about most things, but decided I would rather spend time with Tony than with those who are right, who agree with me about political and social issues, but have become mean and rock hard in their certainty. Friends, we have a lot to learn from that friendship. We really, really do. We need to let Jesus bring us together. I'm going to talk politics for a minute. This is killing us. It is tearing this country apart, and it is bleeding right into the church, where we are making minor issues, lesser issues, ultimate issues. Look at your Facebook posts. Look at and think of the ways we instinctively speak of people that we disagree with. Look, we need to debate, but the fact is there is a lot that is debatable. There is a lot that is open to different opinions and Christian freedom. There really is. I'm not saying everything. I'm not a relativist. Don't, don't hear me saying what I'm not. But there truly is room under the tent. If there was room, my goodness, for Matthew and Simon, how about enough room in, in, under this tent for blue and red? It might just be. Politics, there's nothing wrong with politics. Politics has their place, but not a partisan spirit. Not a demonizing. Not a quick jumping to conclusions about a person because of how they voted and who they voted for. And assuming we know everything about them and how they feel about the issues, issues, by the way, that we probably haven't studied all that thoroughly. I'm going to read you a, a, an excerpt here from Scott Saul's book, Jesus Outside the Lines. During the 1992 presidential elections, a friend of mine told me about an awkward moment in his Bible study. One of the group members expressed excitement because that Sunday she had seen a bumper sticker promoting the other party in the church's parking lot. She was excited because to her this was an indication that non-Christians had come to visit. Imagine the awkwardness when another member of the group chimed in, um, that's my bumper sticker that you saw. Now I'm going to be frank. I fear that could happen here. I really do. I'm not kidding. 
I fear that exact conversation could take place at CPC Clarksville. I pray it doesn't. But it could. I don't know if you noticed, but in the membership vows you just heard assented to a little while ago, there's nothing about party affiliation in there. Nor in the ancient creeds of the church. Nothing. We learn a lot here about the way Jesus creates diversity and what his intentions are for the church. He is beautifully surprising. He is maddeningly different and distinct in the ways that he works. Well, he has to be, doesn't he? I mean, the Savior of the world has got to be a whole lot different than the world he's going to save. He has to be. And praise Jesus, praise His name that He is. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank You that You are not what we expect. You're not what we're counting on. You're so much better. Your ways are not like us. What causes You distress is different than what causes us distress. The ways that you delegate are so much, so very different than the ways that we would, what we would have in mind. And the diversity that you intend that is so obvious as we read through the scriptures.